You may be seated. If you've got your journal, you can get that ready. Uh, if you've got the electronic notes, you can just open them right up and we'll just take off. Last week when, oh, let me pause for a minute before I take off. Uh, deacon nominations are open. If I didn't mention that earlier, go to the church website. There's a link and uh, you can take care of that. If you're nominating someone, you need to say who you are or the link will not, it'll not, it'll die. So you have to say who you are, you have to say who you nominate, and you have to say why you're nominating them. Type out a nice paragraph about how this person you're nominating in your uh, estimation fulfills the requirements in the scripture and blah, 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 okay? So take care of that. And uh, timing, I wish the timing worked a little differently for us. One of the things I've asked the staff to do is, I think Jeremy and David and I are going to have a round table uh, in the month of uh, September. I don't think it's August. I think it's the month of, no, it's, it's August. In the month of August, I think. August or September. Where uh, we want to just talk about uh, the difference between a bishop, a pastor, a deacon, and an elder. I'm not sure the church has ever had a comprehensive conversation about that. And what, what those things even mean when you're reading them in the New Testament. And uh, it would require us to set service aside like this and just talk it out. And if y'all are okay with that, something I'd like to do in an upcoming week just so everybody can have clarity. And uh, unfortunately, it's going to fall after denominations, the way the calendar is set right now, because that needs to happen in the month of July, the nominations. But anyway, we'll work it all out. Just stand by for those, those things all to happen. When we finished last week, we were taking up the thesis question, what about your behavior is drawing people to Christ? And the whole conversation in that section of Romans 12 was how our thinking needs to change about the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters, and, and the saved community of believers, how we are to interact with one another. And uh, the big commandment in verse 9 was that we are to love one another. We are to love sincerely. Remember that in verse 9. We are to love without hypocrisy. No mask, no pretense, no pretending. We're to love genuinely. Now, uh, I know we're to love the unsaved world, and we're going to talk about that this morning. You know, love, love seeing lost come to Christ and all that. But there's a special, there's a special relationship you have with the body of Christ. Body of Christ is not a building at an address. It's individual people formed together in a covenant in union with Christ. And I just want to keep saying these things out loud. You are the body of Christ. And when I say you're to have a special love and a special relationship with the body of Christ, it's people. It's the people you worship with every week. It's the people that are the person discipling you. It's the people you're discipling. It's the people who are teaching your children. It's other people's children and teenagers that you're teaching. Listen, there's lots of relationships here in the body of Christ. And if you're ministering or you're being discipled, or you're in, there's a lot of relationships. Up, down, sideways, all over the place. Those relationships are very special. Because this is the one place you can come into... This is the one body you've entered into where people have been born again just like you. By no merit of their own, but by the grace of God, we've been put in union with Christ. You and I have responded to the gospel. And because of our salvation, we're in Christ. We've been baptized together into one body in, in Christ. 
And this is a very special relationship, and we're to have an exceptional level of care for one another. An exceptional love, a sacrificial love, a, a without hypocrisy, genuine love towards each other. And that's really that section of scriptures down to about verse number 13. And one of the reasons that the discipleship relationship is, is so special is because God created each of us with a deep desire to be truly known by other people. Let me see if I can illustrate something. This is in in my notes. But if people only know the person you pretend to be, and they like this person you're pretending to be, then you never feel really secure. You always feel a little bit like a fraud because they love the person they think you are. And you know that's not really the person you are. Does that make sense? And if they love the person they think you are, not the person you really are, then you never have security. It, It hurts you. You never feel truly accepted into a group of people. Let me show you what real love's about. Real love is about being truly known. This is why marriage is such a wonderful thing. It's about my wife and I truly knowing each other and loving each other in spite of what we know. This is why discipleship is the most awesome thing ever that Jesus did for us to put us in the body of Christ and give us these relationships where we can know and be known by other men and women and we can be honest and we can be real and 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 we can edify and we can be pull the mask and pull down the walls and be who we really are in front of them and be loved in spite of what they know about us. That's a feeling like no other. And that is the environment where growth really happens. That is the environment that Jesus Christ created with his disciples. He knew them. Matter of fact, even when Peter's like, here's who I am, he's like, no, that's who you pretend to be. You pretend to be a tough guy. Peter, rock, you're the rock. But here's what I know, you're unstable. I truly know you. And you say, well, did that freak Peter out? Probably a little bit. But ultimately what it did for Peter is it gave him a solid foundation of acceptance because Christ knew who he truly was and loved him anyway and and invested in him anyway and cared for him anyway. And he kept projecting to Peter who he would be when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. Peter, you're going to be the leader of this group. Peter, I see skills in you. Peter, I see the gift that's in you. Peter, you're going to be great for the kingdom of God. And he lived up to the expectations of Jesus Christ. And I know that you will as well. Now that's really what that section is about. Now Paul shifts the conversation, starting in verse number 14. So if you have a journal... Right next to verse number 14, these words, how we are to think about unbelievers. Because 14 going downward now, this is the section on, this is how you think about the unsaved world, the non-believers, the non-Christian, and it's a unique challenge to us this morning, the words we're about to read. Because our spiritual transformation, this is where Romans started, Romans 12 started, our spiritual transformation by the renewing of our mind, all that we talked about a few weeks ago, our spiritual transformation involves seeing ourselves differently, the church differently, our giftedness differently, 
It involves seeing the unsaved world differently than what comes naturally to us. And it requires the Holy Spirit taking the Word of God to make our thinking different about the unsaved world. And the key thing here is to re- is that star that you have in your journal by verse 9. Everything flows out of the love command. Love sincerely. Everything else flows in this chapter out of that command to love each other like Christ loved. And, and so when that happens and when that thinking changes, we'll be able to demonstrate the sincerity of our love by how we conduct our relationships with those outside the body of Christ. So Paul, as a transition device between loving the body of Christ and loving the unsaved world, as a transition device, he uses the same word in verse 13, and then he uses it again in verse number 14. Now, I just want to share with you the challenges. In a few weeks, when we talk about deacon and bishop and pastor, when we talk about uh, uh, some, some more technical things about interpretation of Scripture, Sometimes people just say to me, well, it just says this in the Bible. This Bible that you have in your hand is 2,000 years old, that New Testament. And it comes from thousands, thousands of fragments that have been discovered all over the world and compiled into eclectic manuscripts, catalogs, okay? And they read all 5,000, 10,000, however many hundreds, whatever they can find of a verse to determine what is the oldest reading and what is the best and most accurate reading. It is a tough thing. I'm going to show you how hard this is coming into English. So it will challenge in a few weeks when I say to you this word actually means this. Let me show you what this looks like. This is one of my study tools that a pastor has. For those of you who understand what a Strong's Concordance is, this is a King James version of the Bible with Strong's Concordance overlay on top of it, which means the numbers on the screen represent singular Greek words. And so, for example, uh, for example, them which persecute, Greek 1377, one Greek word means that, took three English words to describe it. Does that make sense? Translating from one language to another is not one word for one word. It, don't, it won't make sense if you do that. So I want you just to see what happens here. In verse 13, Paul said, distributing the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Notice Greek 1377 is translated given to hospitality. Notice in the next verse, Paul uses the exact same word back to back. But it's translated persecute. Now, does that blow your mind? Now, don't you understand the difficulty that we have trying to correctly translate and apply the Scripture? What Paul did is he used this as a transition device. I'm talking to you up here, down uh, through verses 13 about how you deal with each other. Now I'm going to use the same word again and show you how to deal with the unsaved world. And he uses that word back-to-back as a transition between sections. But when you see it in your English Bible... You miss it completely because it wasn't written in English. It, re- it was written in Greek. Now, now let me see if I can explain. Uh, like English words, Greek words have a lot of nuances to them, which can change the meaning. Greek 13, 
77 is the uh, Greek word dioko. Dioko. It has several meanings. In verse 13, uh, dioko is translated as given to in a King James Bible. I'll show you in an ESV in just a moment. It's translated as seek to show. Hospitality is what comes next. In the next verse, 14, the exact same word, dioko, is translated as persecute you. (laughs) Seek to show hospitality and persecute you seem like opposite concepts to me at first glance. And so you would never in English know that was the same word and the device Paul is using unless you could see that in the original language. Now let me see if I can explain. In English, our words are nuanced as well. In English, running a 5K is actually running. You with me? Whereas, running to the store is not running, it's driving. That is correct. Whereas, driving someone crazy is not driving, it could be talking. You kids are driving me crazy. It could be playing. You're driving me crazy. It could be behavior. Does that make sense? For example, the word hunt can have several meanings in English. Uh, uh, David and I went duck hunting. We were hunting for ducks. In that context, it means to pursue to kill something. We were hunting, hunting to kill something. Uh, if I said, hey, Steve and I were hunting for a new pickup, we weren't seeking to kill one. You know, Heather and I went hunting for a new apartment for Blake. Didn't mean we were going to kill an apartment. It meant we were seeking, we were pursuing to find something. Now, here's what I want to say to you because it tempers conversations that are coming in the upcoming months. <clears throat> to really understand what's happening It's about understanding culture. It's about understanding the context those words were used in and what it meant to them when it was said. That's the key here. Let me put it up in English, and you can see the way it's translated in a modern English Bible. This is Romans 12, 13, 14 from your ESV version. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Seek to show is the word. Seek to show hospitality. Verse 14, bless those who persecute. Bless and do not curse them. Now, here's what's interesting when you see this. So, Dioko in 13 is translated as seek to show, which means to pursue with the intent to do something. In this context, what are we pursuing with the intent to do? Show hospitality, do something good. You are to pursue each other in the body of Christ with the intent to do something good. And what is that something good? Show show hospitality. Now, you guys talk to me a little bit here. No trick questions. What does show hospitality mean? Oh, goodness, it means open your home. It doesn't mean hospital. It means hospitable. It means you open your home, you share your food, you share your stuff, you're you're kind, you're gracious, you're sharing, you're entertaining, you're engaging, you're including, you're welcoming, you're opening, you're opening your life and you're sharing your substance with the body of Christ. 
That's hospitality in the New Testament. So, seek to do something good, pursue to do something good, which is show hospitality to each other. Now the transition happens, and we're looking outside the church. In verse 14, bless those who persecute. Dielko is translated as persecute. Persecute means to pursue someone with the intent of doing evil, the intent of doing harm. So let me see if I can make it make sense in a cultural context to us. As Paul turns our attention to the unbelieving world and said, now let's change our thinking as we look outward to the lost world, Paul's point is simply this. Christians are to pursue hospitality even though the world's going to be pursuing hostility. And he used that word pursue, basically, back to back to get your transition to start. While you're pursuing hospitality with each other, I want you to know the world might, is going to be pursuing hostility towards you. While you're being hospitable, the world may look at you and say, I want to hurt you. Now, you're blessed as Americans to not experience any or very little of this in your life. I had a conversation with one of our disciples this week on the phone in Asia. He said, do not come right now. It is not safe for you or anyone from your church to come here. We need to go meet at another location instead in another country. Listen, that's a conversation you don't have very often in our context. Never have we said to each other in a a phone call or an email to the congregation, Guys, don't come Sunday. It's not safe for you to be here. We've had threats of bombs and terrorism and this. We've never had to say that. Thank God we've never had to say that to you. It's not safe to come here and gather on Sunday. But I want you to know, even right now, all over the world, this is the thoughts of your disciples. Show hospitality to each other. At the same time, the world may be pursuing you for hostility. Now, this news... When Paul says this, there are going to be people pursuing your mistreatment, even though you're trying to live for Christ and be all that God wants you to be, be transformed, be like Christ. There are going to be people pursuing your maltreatment. If that news is surprising to you or if that news is a revelation to you, I don't want it to hurt your feelings this morning. It's just an aspect of our thinking that needs to be transformed and adjusted towards the outside world that opposes Christianity. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when people shall hate you and when they shall exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Listen, when people are hostile and angry and speak bad of you, son of man's a term for Jesus. It's a term he used about himself. It's his favorite name for himself. When people are mistreat you because of me, Jesus said, blessed are you. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. 
For they did the same thing, their fathers did the same thing to the prophets. What he's saying is this has happened in every generation. Every generation has mistreated the followers of God, the followers of Christ. And if it happens to you, you're in a wonderful company of people that it's happened to. Blessed are you. That's what they did to Daniel. How would you like to be in his company? That's what they did to Paul. How would you like to be in his circle of friends? Okay? All right, that's what they did to John the Baptist. How would you like to be in his company? That's what they did to God's people. You're in awesome company. Rejoice. You Great is your reward in heaven. John 15. It's a great time. The vine, you are the branches chapter where Jesus is talking to his disciples about bearing fruit. John 15 verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another in the body of Christ. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, if it brings you any comfort, Jesus said, I'm going to leave you now. He's getting just before the cross in his time frame. I'm going to leave you. Just a day, you're going to be without me. But I want you to know, the world's going to hate you. Do not let that stop you from moving forward. Do not let that stop you from making disciples. Do not let that stop you from the context of Romans 12, loving. Let love be sincere. Do not let the fact that other people hate stop you from loving. The world's going to hate, okay? Do not let that stop God's people from loving. Two chapters later in John 17, Jesus is on his knees. His whole prayer is about his disciples and for his disciples. He's praying, Father, I want to pray for my disciples now. You're going to be arrested in just a few hours, okay? Be crucified in the morning. And he's praying that big prayer for his disciples. Listen to what he prays in verse 14. I have given them, my disciples, your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Father, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but I'm praying that you keep them from the evil one. There's a beautiful teaching here, which I don't have time to really expand If God wanted you to be separate and come out of the world, it seems like we'd just be raptured to heaven at our baptism. But if we were raptured to heaven at our baptism, who would lead the next generation to Christ? In other words, if we got saved, got baptized, and we're at that spiritual peak, we've never backslidden, it's all good, we're right with God, why don't he just take us to heaven? Well, the answer is simple, who's going to make disciples? If God took us all out, who's going to make disciples? You see the point. Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. God, what I pray is that you would protect them and keep them from the evil one. People want to hurt my people. And God, I'm not praying you take my people out. I could take them to safety in heaven. But that's not the best option. The best option is that you stay right here, even though you might be persecuted... Stay right here and keep loving and keep on the mission of Christ and keep making disciples for another generation. That's the best option for God's people. So this morning it's simply adjusting our thinking to come to grips with the fact that there are some people who will never like you. There are some people who will never like you. Just come to grips with it. Say, well, I want to make them like me. You can't. 
There are some people who will never like you. They'll never be pleased by what you do, by what you say, by how you conduct your life. And here's the point that Paul's making. It's not really you they have the issue with. It's not really you. Because as a matter of fact, in your former life, they were fine with you. It's only now they have a problem with you, if you understand what I'm saying. It's not really you they have the issue with. The issue is with Jesus Christ and his gospel. And the thing is, you are called to be ambassadors of that gospel. You are called to put forth that gospel. You are ambassadors for Christ. You're called to put forth Christ to this generation that you live in so that they can carry it to the next generation. You're called to be an champion and an ambassador for Christ. There is the rub right there. And it's Christ that the world has a problem with. He's not of this world and the world does not love him. Now I'm building the context, okay? The persecution, let's use that word, persecution of the church had begun to really intensify now. Christ is gone. Paul's on his missionary journeys. He's planting churches. Persecution is really rising in the Roman Empire. This letter is being written by Paul. He's going to deliver it, put it into the hands of Phoebe the deacon, and she's going to carry it to the church at Rome. And she's going to read it to the church at Rome, and she's going to explain it to the church at Rome. Paul had never been to Rome. He had never met that church. And he writes in this letter, I hope to meet you, but I want you to know the gospel that I preach. And he lays out one of the greatest books in your Bible, a beautiful treatise on the gospel and Christian conduct and church behavior and church behavior towards each other and towards the unsaved world. As Paul is laying this out, the church is being hammered. I mean, Emperor Claudius is turning up the persecution. Uh, He's commanded that all Jews be expelled from the city of Rome. Probably pushed Aquila and Priscilla right out of the church. uh, And they had to go out into the other parts of the Gentile world. But again, they were church planters, if you would. They were doing the work of apostles, if you would. And they're going to go start another church somewhere. So God used even the persecution to take the gospel onward and onward and onward. And now Paul says in this context of great mistreatment against the New Testament church, let me talk to you about that. Here it is. It's in verse number 14. Bless those who persecute you. I know, church, you're under persecution. Here's how I want you to respond. Let your mind be transformed. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, the the command is not merely don't get angry. The the, the command is not just bite your tongue. The, the, The command is bless them. Speak words of peace and kindness to them. God's not saying bite your tongue. He's saying open your mouth and use your tongue as a blessing. Now, do you understand how difficult uh, this teaching is? Someone mistreats. You're pursuing hospitality. Somebody pursues hostility towards you. God says, okay, what are you going to do? Bless them. Not bite your tongue. Not turn them. He's saying engage them with words of kindness. 
The word bless has a connotation of lifting someone up to the presence of God. It's very kin to a prayer kind of word. Blessing, a word of blessing. Lift you up. I have a blessing for you. I want to pronounce goodness into your life. I want to pronounce kindness into your life. I want to pronounce something beneficial into your life. Uh, the, the verse, uh, bless those who persecute you, the word you is not really in the Greek. They supplied that in the English to make it make a little more sense. The command's actually a little more generic. The word you is not there. The command in Greek is bless those who persecute. Period. <laughs> just bless, can I say but from the pulpit? Those people that are just buts and just just are angry and persecuting every just people who persecute people who just are angry and and violent and against everything how are we to respond to people who are that way just bless them just bless them just just words of kindness now let me ask you an honest question don't answer this one out loud how do you feel about that command don't answer out loud how are you how would you say you're doing in regard to obeying this? Yeah. I don't do very good in obeying this verse of Scripture. I've got to the point where I can bite my tongue and walk away. But that's not the command. The command is bless. Ugh. We still need to grow, don't we? We still need to have our minds transformed by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God a little more because we've got maybe to the point in our spiritual development where we can not lash out. But he didn't say don't lash out. He said be a blessing instead. That's another click of spiritual transformation that many of us have yet to get to. But I think we can get there. I think we can get there. And I think we could get there fairly quickly. We've just not really been challenged to implement this and, and go to this level of transformation in our spiritual development and changing our thinking through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's important to realize that what Paul is saying to you really are the very words of Christ. So let me give you some of the teaching from the Sermon on the Mount again. Matthew 5. Here's the words of Jesus. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, let me tell you, that's old news and that's incomplete teaching. Here's what I want to say. 44, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Wow, what, what a level. Now, there's some sincere love right there. There's some real love. Luke records the words of Jesus. These may be the exact words that Paul was quoting in Romans chapter 12. These words of Jesus from Luke 6, 27. But I say to you, Jesus said, I say to you who will hear it, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Watch the next verse. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who who abuse you. I'm not sure in the last few hundred years how much the Christian church has taught on these verses. 
we rail against those people who don't hold our opinions. We throw scripture grenades at everybody. And, and we wage verbal warfare on all of our opponents. This is quite different. Now, Paul dealt with false doctrine in a, in a very confrontational way. And there, there's definitely a time and place for that. But Jesus is saying on a very personal level here, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who are abusing you. Now listen, I'm going to be very transparent because I think I know probably where all of our minds and hearts are this morning. It's very hard to love someone who's unkind to you when they're a brother or sister in Christ. When they're a brother or sister biologically. (laughs) It's hard to love when you're mistreated by a brother or sister. It's a whole other thing. It's especially difficult to love when someone, when that someone who's persecuting you holds Christ in contempt and holds the church of Christ in contempt. It's incredibly challenging for us to love those that oppose and hate Jesus Christ. But loving them is exactly what Paul is challenging us to do. And you might be thinking right now, Pastor, this is crazy. Crazy teaching. Here's why it sounds crazy, because our minds have not been transformed by the renewing. (laughs) You see what's happening. When Bible teaching sounds crazy, then something, it's not the Bible that's crazy. It's me that's crazy. It's just that my mind hadn't caught up with Jesus, hadn't been transformed to think in the way that Christ. This is why Paul started this section with, let your minds be transformed over there in chapter 8 and, and, and all the way to 12. You've got to change the way, way, the sphere in which we think and operate. You have to think about the lost world in the way that Christ thinks about the lost world. How does Christ think about the lost world? John 3.16 is a great example, but Romans 5.8 is a great example. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, not dressed up, saved up, sanctified believers, when we were sinners. Another word for that in the New Testament is at enmity with God, enemies with God. When we were his enemies, Christ loved us. And died for us. It gets even more interesting in verse 15. Now we're asked to enter emotionally into into the lives of unbelievers. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now the command is bless them. How can we be a blessing to the unsaved world? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now at a 35,000 foot view... What Paul is asking us to do is to bless other people by connecting with their emotions and feelings. Bless people by making a personal connection with what they're feeling when they're crying, when they're happy, when they're rejoicing. The old adage is, if you really want to know what a man's life is, you have to walk a mile in his shoes. And you guys, in English, it really doesn't mean you walk in somebody else's shoes. You understand what I'm saying? It means you understand what his life is like before you judge him. Does that make sense? What Paul is saying to us is, I want you not to walk in his shoes. I want you to take a walk inside of their hearts. I want you to get into the heart, get into the mind of the person who's causing you pain and feel what they feel for a moment. Try to understand what's happening. Rejoice when they rejoice, weep when they weep. Feel what they feel. What's going on in there? 
Mourn when they mourn. Laugh when they laugh. Feel what an unbeliever feels a little bit. Feel their lostness. Feel their anger. Feel their hostility. Listen, do you remember what it was like before you were saved? To be angry all the time? To be uncertain all the time? To to not live in any kind of measurable peace? Okay, now that you've made that connection, extend a blessing to them and meet them in their time of need. Love, verse 9, genuinely. Now verse 16 elaborates on why we have such a hard time with this. Romans 12, 16. Why we're so slow to respond this way to our enemies. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Now let's just give a big explanation here. But I think the opposite of harmony is something like dissonance. So harmony, Jeff, is when you guys are up here and you're playing different notes, but they blend to a chord. Those several notes, those several strings you've got pressed down in your strung, make a pleasant sound. They go together pleasantly. Dissonance would be when you just randomly jam some strings down and rant just, just not pleasant. Not that he ever would do that or ever does that. I'm not insinuating that. It's always a very pleasant harmonious dissonance is the opposite of that disharmony unpleasant clunker notes clunker sounds things that don't go together what Paul says is live in harmony with one another live in a way where we can pleasantly peacefully get along not just in here that's the other verses now try to pleasantly get along with your unsaved neighbor the fence blows down, you got to feel what they feel. You know what they feel? I can't keep my dog in my yard. You can't keep your dog in your yard. I'm just saying. Your neighbor loses a job, feel what they feel. Listen, somebody, your neighbor, co-worker, who's not a Christian, maybe treats you terribly, has a death in their family. Do you understand the open door you have right now with that jerk at work? Do you understand the open door you have? They lost a loved one. Somebody's spouse is sick. Their kid is sick. Now is the moment to feel what they feel and think what they think and show up with flowers and show up with food. You say, well, that guy makes my life miserable. I know. But you want to be like Jesus right now, maybe more than you've ever been in your whole life? No, you're not earning your salvation. You're already saved, and that's why you're being asked to do this. Not so you'll be more saved or God will be more pleased. He's asking you to do this because you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is what Christ would do in a moment like this. The president of the synagogue who hated Jesus and was always against Jesus, his daughters at the point of death. And so the president of the synagogue is heartbroken. And does Jesus say, dude, you're a jerk and you've treated me like trash? He says, no, where's your daughter? Let's go. I'll go heal her. Well, she died before they could get there. So you know what Jesus did? He goes into the house, pushes the press out, shuts the door, pulls the blinds so the cameras can't see anything, and he goes into the bedroom and he raises the little girl from the dead. Do you understand? That's the guy who hated Jesus and mistreated Jesus, the president of the synagogue. (laughs) And he just raised that guy's girl from the dead. Let's make her something to eat. You okay, sister? Oh, you look good. Some color in your cheeks now. 
listen, Dad, she's going to be fine. Listen, Mom, she's going to be fine. What do you think happened to those people? The story doesn't tell us, but what do you think happened to those people? I think their lives were transformed in that moment. And they understand Jesus was the Son of God, put their faith in Him, received Christ. That's what I think happened in that moment. I don't know how else you'd come away with much different opinion. You say, what happened? He treated his enemies differently than we treat our enemies. Live in harmony. Watch the verse 16. Do not be haughty. There it is right there. Do not be haughty. But live, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Don't be conceited thinking that you're better than anyone else. Proverbs 16 says, pride comes before a fall. Haughty spirit before a fall. Christians can be an arrogant group. I'm telling, tattling on us a little bit this morning. We can be an arrogant group because we often think that we have more understanding than the world has. See, we're God's people. We get it. You guys don't. We're better than you. We're smarter than you. You see, I'm God's child. So therefore, you're not God's child. Therefore, that makes me intrinsically better than you. I'm superior than you are. And that haughty spirit is the exact thing that Paul is cautioning against right here. And he's saying it's that haughty attitude that somehow there's us and them and we're better than you. And us who are God's children and them who are not God's children. Us who live after the spirit and those who don't. And there's true. There is a difference. But the haughtiness in our own eyes is counter to what Christ is trying to do in our lives. Listen, we were them. We were them. And it was not by any goodness of ourselves that now we're God's children. It was all God's grace and God's kindness and God's mercy come into our lives that took us from being alienated and enemies with God and brought us into the family of God and made us who we are. That's what Romans 1 through 8 are all about. That God did that for us. And now out of gratitude, he's saying, I want you to bless your enemies and not curse them. If you're grateful for all I've done in your life, I want you to be renewed in your thinking now. And I want you to try to bless your enemies instead of curse them. And this is why I think Paul put things in this order. I think as Christians, we all likely could have a time of confession this morning at the altar. Child, child of God, and just be able to confess to God, God, sometimes I think I'm superior to my coworker because of my salvation. Forgive me for that. God, sometimes I feel like I'm better than the people who aren't your children. And God, forgive me because I think maybe my haughty spirit has prevented me from being a blessing to the unsaved world. See, when you bless the world, it's going to affect the world. That's what we're getting to and hadn't got to yet. Paul addressed self-image first because your self-image flows out of your relationship with Christ. You're not ready to treat others properly until you understand who you are in Jesus Christ. I think this is the reason that teenagers and young adults of every generation go through a time of finding themselves, finding ourselves. Because you're really not ready to be healthy and productive in this life until you understand who you are. And I get that. I think a lot of times in middle age, men and women go through a kind of a upheaval again and try to readjust and refigure out, okay, now, who, who am I now? My kids are going out of the house or I'm at this place in my life, and you've got to figure out who you are. And it's from the security and foundation of our union with Christ and our relationship biologically in our family and our relationship with the family of Christ that we get that sense of community within the kingdom of God.
It's here. It's how we know we're loved sincerely and completely and absolutely and individually. You're, you're not just part of the big thing. You're, you're, a, you're an individual person who is a loved and precious and gifted for God to use in His kingdom. It's from that self-image you get a strong sense of security, which results in a lot of confidence, which results in being able to use your spiritual gifts freely and generously and with liberty, which gives you the ability to be creative and think outside the box, which gives you the latitude to be all that God wants you to be. So Paul's challenge is simply this. Don't underthink yourself. Opening of the chapter. Okay, now don't overthink yourself. Don't be haughty. Don't overthink who you are. He deals now with the section on paybacks. Let's talk about it very quickly before we go. Paybacks are not your realm. All of us need to change our thinking about getting even with people. Paybacks are not our realm. It's not the sphere we operate in. It's not our job position. It's not our title. We're not the payback master. We're not the payback uh, maharaj. It's not our realm at all. Paybacks are not our business. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of of all. Don't be the person who starts the fray. Don't be the person who's got to get the last word. Don't be the person who's got to get the last shot. Don't be the person who's got to pay back and get everything even and settle the score. It's not your realm. Remember that God told his children we are not to fight evil with evil. We're to fight evil with good. First Peter 3.9 do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, but on the contrary, there it is, whole different apostle saying the exact same thing. Don't fight evil with evil, but on the contrary, the transformed Christian is to bless, for to this were you called. Why? Why? That you may obtain a blessing. You want to have a blessed life? Then bless. You want to have a violent life? Then do violence. You want to live by the sword? Then you can die by the... Listen, you want to have a life that's blessed and you want people to bless? Then learn to bless. So transform your thing. But they're my enemies, you're saying. Jesus, I know it. <laughs> learn to bless them. I'll show you the ultimate fruit of it in just a moment. John wrote to growing disciples like us. 1 John chapter 2, I write to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you young men because you're strong. Spiritual will. Parents, young people, young adults. He's saying I'm writing to you growing disciples because the word of God abides in you. Now stay with me. Paul said if the word of God gets in you, it's going to change your thinking. Ultimately then your behavior. The word of God abides in you. Watch what John says. And you have over come the evil one it's not that people weren't trying to hurt him but you're just bigger than that you've just overcome that you're living on a whole nother plane you're saying well that means no evil is going to happen no it's probably still going to happen but your response is different and now you bless because God's transformed you from the inside out and because you're fighting evil with good you are overcoming the evil one stay with me now as I land this Paul continues with vengeance, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. 
Now, that leaves the door open that there are some people it's not possible to live at peace with. Just that, that may be a scenario which we deal with as an exception, okay? But for the general rule, if possible, so far as it depends on your side, from your point of view, live peaceably with all. Let, let me ask you, w- wouldn't you rather live a peaceable life than a life under attack all the time? Wouldn't you rather live at peace and harmony and, and quietness and love? I mean, this is what Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, tell the church in Ephesus to pursue peace, quiet, happy lives. Just live a happy life at peace and don't be in turmoil and contention and, and all of this. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge. Could that be clearer? Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So I'm going to say to you this morning as a church, leave it to the wrath of God and let it go. Say, somebody hurt me. Me too. Say, I've been hurt a lot. Me too. I feel it. Me too. You say, Pastor, I don't see how you're dealing with it. Exactly. Exactly. You say, Pastor, I don't see you responding to it. Exactly. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. Now, listen, if somebody attacks you, I'm going to fight them. If somebody attacks my kids as a father, I'm going to protect them. You understand the difference? Somebody attacks me, let it go. You see the difference. Protect your family. Protect your disciples. Somebody attacks you, let it go. Let it go. Say why? Never try to avenge yourself. Leave it to God. God will take care of it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Good is more powerful than evil. Can I get a witness right there? Good is more powerful than evil. We've got two verses left. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, tell me the response. If he's thirsty, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Now Paul tells you why he's asking you to behave this way. You say, great, let's torch him. Burning coals. It's not talking about calling your fire-breathing dragon down on them. Something very different is happening here, if that's what you think. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them to drink. Because God will take your acts of kindness and he will make the evildoers feel ashamed that they've treated you so badly because look at how kind you're being and your kind act is going to burn on their conscience and your kindness will touch their hearts in a way that my message could never get to them. Your kind act is going to do something and it's going to cause them to feel very differently because your acts of kindness are more powerful than the world's acts of evil. Let me give you a personal scenario for Paul. In Paul's case, it was a young man named Stephen. And Paul was the one who had the death warrant and the execution warrant. And Paul stoned Stephen with that group of men. And Stephen's kindness in the act of being murdered 
his kind words, the message, what came out of Stephen as they were killing him. And Paul is there consenting to the death. And Stephen said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. God, they may have done some bad things in their life, but don't put this on their account. They're murdering you. Yeah, he's like, yeah, let's don't put that on the list of crimes against them. I'll take one for the team. At reward day, we're going to be way back in the line. That's all I'm saying. You understand what Stephen did? He lived this out and said, lay not this sin to Saul of Tarsus. God, give him a pass on this. I don't think he understands the big picture here. God, lay not this sin to their charge. And I want you to know it was that act of kindness and those words that convicted Paul in his heart, Saul of Tarsus in his heart. And ultimately it was those words that haunted him in his sleep and he could never get past Stephen's face as he looked up to heaven and said, I see heaven open. God forgive them of what they're doing to me. It convicted Paul and haunted Saul until he ultimately was converted and became the apostle Paul, now here's the conclusion, verse number 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is the thesis statement that we're going to try to be transformed by this week. We're going to bless instead of curse, and we're going to overcome evil with good. And when you do that, that is your spiritual worship before God. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Now, A few things I think would be good to happen right here. One, I think every Christian could just confess a little bit of that haughty spirit that sometimes gets in us and say, God, forgive me of being lifted up in my own heart, being lifted up in my own pride. I'm not better than anyone else. God, I'm saved by your grace, and I'm I'm happy to be your child, but God, I'm not superior to others because I am your child. God, forgive me of my spirit of haughtiness and pride toward the unsaved world. Does the way you live your life cause others to question their own relationship with Christ? Have you practiced speaking kindness to your enemies? Christian, let me challenge you right now. We're not going to be able to speak blessing to an unsaved world unless we can first speak a blessing in a safe environment to our own brothers and sisters. Until we can use our tongues to bless one another, I'm not sure we're going to be able to go out there and confront the lost world. The Holy Spirit's going to give you the words. I I get that. But your willingness and your yielding to speak blessing takes intentional acts of your will to say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to speak a blessing. Speaking a blessing is something we practice with our team in Israel. It's something we practice here on Wednesday nights in the class in the auditorium here where we intentionally look at one another and speak a blessing to them. I want to challenge you this morning, maybe this few minutes right here before we leave this room would be an opportunity for you just to look at someone and put your arm around them and say, hey, here's my blessing for you. 
ask you to quietly stand to your feet with your heads bowed. And I'm going to just ask if you've never received Christ as your Savior, never received Christ as your Savior, what a great moment you have right now. Why don't you reach out to Christ and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. Jesus, I believe you're the Savior. And this morning, I want to put my faith and my trust in you. Pray like this. Dear God, I confess my sin to you and my need of a Savior. Jesus, I believe you're everything the Bible declares you to be, the sinless Son of God. This morning, I'm crying out to you to be my Savior. Forgive me of my sin. Adopt me into your family. Come and be the Lord and Savior of my life from this moment and forevermore. Lord, help me now to turn my back on my old life and to turn and live for you for the rest of my life. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for your forgiveness in my life today. This is my prayer. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I wish I would take a minute. Many of you are, understand what it means to bless someone else. It's something you do on Wednesday night. Uh, I just want to challenge you. We've got about seven minutes together right now. Let's take 30 seconds of that seven minutes. If you're comfortable with that, why don't you just move to someone in the room and just reach out to them and just say, here's my blessing upon your life. If you're comfortable with that, just don't let it freak you out if you're not. But if you are, you're one of our Wednesday night people, one of our staff, know what that's all about. Just turn to your neighbor and just be a blessing to them. Piece of cake. You know exactly what to do. You do it every Wednesday night.